Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at Grace Point Church, we believe in meeting people where they are and leading them to where God wants them to be. Join us now as we listen to this week's message. So we are in week three of our series, Man Up, and we have been unapologetically talking to the men who are here but also to anyone who has a man in their lives. So it's not just men, but if you have a man in your life, if you have a husband, a brother, a son, uh, if you are uh, trying to raise a son to be a good man, uh, we are talking to you. Young, old, married, single, we've been talking to you, and we've been asking this question over the last two weeks, what is it that it takes to be a good man. According to what God has said, what does it take to be a good man? And last week, one of the things that we talked about was that Scripture tells us that there is something inside all of us. Men, there is something in us that makes us ask, am I a good man? Am I good enough? There's something in us that that wants to look and evaluate our lives and see, am I the man that I am supposed to be? And if I'm not, then how do I get there? And last week, and actually since we started, we have been talking about what the problems are. And today, we are going to take a step past looking at the problem, looking at what keeps us or what is that gap between who we are today and who we could be. And we're going to talk about how it is or what it is and... What does it mean to be a good man? Now, I think that we can all agree, and especially for those of you who are parents, and and that very first time that you, if you are parents of a son, that very first time that you held your son and you thought to yourself, and this right here is perfection. This is going to be a good man. And I would like to think that we all are, All of us at some point had someone that looked at us when we were a child and said we were on that path. Men, that someone looked at us and said that little baby boy is going to grow up to be a good man. A good man. And for many of us, somewhere in our lives, things kind of just derail. And it could be that it's something that we did. More often than not, it's something that happened to us, that came into our lives, something happened and we exchanged what God said is supposed to be what a good man is, and we exchanged it for something else. And in order for anything to change, in fact, every man who has made a significant change in their life, the one thing that they will tell you that they all have in common is this, is that they had a moment, a moment where they looked in the mirror either a real mirror or a metaphorical mirror, but they looked in the mirror and they said, I can't do this anymore. I have to get my crap together. I can't keep living life like this. I need to start doing something different because if I am going to get better, if I want something different in my life, I've got to start doing something different. And we all want better. 
Men, don't we all want to be better? Don't we all want to be better in every role that we have in our lives? We want to be a better husband. We want to be a better father. We want to be a better boss, a better employee, a better coach, a better colleague, a better classmate. Don't we look around our lives and say, man, I do want to be better. And for us, what motivates us, what motivates most people is really one of two things. It's either pain or pleasure. It's the carrot or the stick. We either go into our lives and we see that there is something that is so painful that hurts us so much that we get to the breaking point and we say, I've got to make a change. Or we get a vision for what things could be, of how good things could be. Scripture calls that hope. And so last week I said, if you will just hang with me, and I'm glad to see that many of you have, because let's face it, over these last couple of weeks, we've been beating the guys up pretty good. It's been tough, I know, because it speaks to me as much as it speaks to any of us. But last week I said that we were going to answer two questions today. We were going to, as, as men, we were going to find out the answers to two questions. Who are we and what are we here for? And for the last two weeks, we've been talking about the problems. But today, we're going to be talking about hope. So last week, if you were here, if you were watching us online, you know that I gave you homework. It was to read the very first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I read them twice. I know you can do it in about four minutes. So I will assume that all of these smiling faces that are looking at me and all of those of you who are watching us online, that you took the time to read Genesis 1 to 3, right? Uh-huh. But don't worry, because we are going to go through parts of it. Uh, if you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it, because it is uh, one of the most fascinating uh, chapter, these three fascinating chapters of scripture, because it's from the very beginning. It's the very start. It talks about creation. And so when we read the very first verse, the very first book is Genesis. The very first chapter is chapter one. The very first verse is verse one. And it starts like this. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is an important thing for us because one of the things we've been talking about is that when we see something and it's not working the way that it works, what we do is we go to the owner's manual. So if our car isn't working and we want to find out how to make it work, we go to the owner's manual. If we have a, a, a computer or, or a light switch or a camera or any kind of tool and we don't know how to get the most out of it, we go to the owner's manual. And who writes the owner's manual? It's not some guy who's never seen the thing before. The owner's manual is always written by the manufacturer. And so we have a person, a being, a God who created us. He was the manufacturer and he gave us an owner's manual. And this is basically telling us, listen, here's my authority for writing this. Here is my authority. I am the one who manufactured it. I'm the one who designed it. I'm the one who produced it. I am the creator. So he says in the beginning, listen, from all, above all else, in the beginning, God created the, he the heavens and the earth. And then he says in verse 2, he says the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God 
was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, I like that word hovering because if you look at that word in the Hebrew, it talks about vibrations. And modern uh, quantum theorists will tell you that the universe is actually made up of strings, not particles, but strings. And what we see and what we feel and what we experience are all based on, get this, the vibration of those strings. And so from the very beginning, he says the Spirit of God was hovering. It was vibrating over the surface of the waters. And then the next verse starts like this. Then God said. Then God said. So how did he do it? If you read chapter 1, you read all through it, everything that he created, he created by speaking it. He said something, and then it existed. And only God can do that. I have tried. I say many things. Get me the remote. Do the laundry. None of those things ever happen. Because I am not God. But God is God. And he speaks things into existence and they exist. And only God can do that. And so if we read through the entire chapter one, we hear God and God is speaking things. He's speaking suns and moon. He's speaking light. He's speaking animals. He is speaking uh, trees. He is speaking everything into existence. And as his words come out, they exist. So in the very first verse, when it says, then God said, let there be light out of the breath of God, light came shooting out at 186,000 miles per second and has continued to expand at that rate. And when he created it all, at the end of every day of creating it all, he ended every day by saying this, and this is from verse 21, and he says, and God saw that it was good. He would create, and then he saw that it was good. And that thing that saw that it was good was not just evaluating, but it was affirming. It wasn't just looking at it and going, hmm, that's cool. But it was actually giving it value because God said it was good. And this is God's pattern. God creates things. He gives them names. And then he says, they are good. He says they have value. And so this is the one thing that I want you to, to pick up for those of you who did not read Genesis 1. You may not have seen the pattern, but this is how he does it. God intentionally spoke, placed, moved, rearranged, and separated things so that they would thrive. He put them in order. He arranged them in a certain way so that they would thrive. He set them in place and he put them into motion. And this, even though this is not an ability that we have, men, this is something we need to take notice of. Our words matter. The words that come out of our mouth matter. Verse 26, it goes on and it says this, Then God said... Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Now, let's not let this one go because there's a lot in here that we have to unpack. The first thing is, is that he says, let us. Now, this is us 
God saying us plural. And this isn't like the royal we where it says, you know, we are glad that you are here in front of us today. It's not that kind of plural. It's not that kind of us. This is God talking about who the essence of God and what the essence of God is. That there is not just a single essence of God, but there is a Father and there is a Son and there is a Holy Spirit. And from the very beginning, from the creation of the world, that they lived in community and coexisted together. Let us, and then he says this, listen, he says, let us make together. They're working together. They're acting together. And then he uses this word, human beings. Now, if you have been around Scripture, if you grew up reading the Bible, you probably read this verse, and, uh, you, and the way you remember it is, is it said, let us make man in our image. And that's kind of thrown a bunch of things off. Uh, I like this translation. Uh, this, is, this is the New Living Translation, which I always teach out of, but I especially like what they did with this verse, because the word man is the Hebrew word ha-adam. It's H-A hyphen and then Adam, and which turns out to be that Adam is the word for man. So there are times where it says man and it means Adam, the masculine man, but when the ha is in front of it, ha-adam does not mean a particular man or male. It means humanity, human beings. So here he's saying, let us make human beings. And this is interesting to me. He says, let us make them in our image and to be like us. And that word for image is a masculine word, but the word for like us is a feminine word. So in this verse, he's saying, listen, I am going to make humanity and there is going to be a masculine and a feminine part of it. Right in the very verse where, he's, where they're talking about it together. Let us make them into our image and to be like us. And no other part of creation has that. There is nothing else that is created that was created with God's image and God's likeness. And so here is God and he says, listen, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to make something, someone who is like me. And I'm going to tell him to go and do things like I do. And so God, he creates everything. And listen, when you create something out of nothing, that is yours. You're the owner. It's your kingdom. It's God's kingdom. He's the one that, he, that created it all. So here's this earth. And he's created all of these things, all of these beautiful things. That we now pay money to fly off into the middle of nowhere to see God created all of that. And he created this person. And then listen to what he does. In verse 26, it goes on and it says this. He says, they will reign. And I love that because the way I grew up hearing it was that they will have dominion. And there's so many things that you could say about dominion. And I'm not saying that that's a bad word for it, but this totally explains it. Because they will reign over fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Reign. Do you know what reign means? Reign means to rule with the authority of a king. And God said, listen, I have created this person, 
And not only am I, have I created this person to enjoy what I've created, I am going to give him the ability to rule over it like a king. Verse 27, it goes on and says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And throughout his creation, he would look at something and he would say, that's good. But when he got to people, he said, that's very good. And these things that we look at around the sky, we look at, we look at a beautiful sunset. We see the stars and we think, man, that is awesome. And we look around at each other and we treat each other as poorly as we do. But we don't value it the same as God does. Because we look in the sky and we say, that's awesome. And God looks at it and he says, that's good. And we look at each other and we say, you're all right. And God looks at me and he says, you're very good. And God looks at you and he says, you're very good. And God looks at your brother-in-law who you never want to talk to at Thanksgiving. And he says, you, he is very good. Right? God looks at everybody and he says, you are very good. So chapter 1 gives us this overview of the creation story. But chapter 2 lets us dive in and really take a good look at it. So in chapter 2, it says this in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man. Now this is not ha-adam. This word translated in the Hebrew in this verse is just the word adam. Which turns out to be both his name... And what he is. Because Adam just means man. Not mankind, but man. A masculine. The man. And this is the first thing that he creates without speaking. That he forms with his own hands. So it says, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And then he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. And that word breath of life is the word pneuma. And it means breath. It means air. But it also means spirit. Which means when God breathed life into Adam, he breathed, he breathed spirit, his spirit into him. And as a result of that, that verse ends by saying, and the man became a living person, an individual, a person with thoughts, a person with feelings. He was a man. And the reason that you and I can relate to and respond to God is because we were made, unlike anything else, we were made in the image of God and with God's likeness. We contain his pneuma, we contain his breath, his spirit is in us. And that makes us different from any other thing that God has created. There are other creatures that are alive and they breathe, but they are not like us. We are the only ones that contain God's breath. And God gave that to us and he said, listen, not only are you going to have my image and my likeness, but you are going to reign. You are going to act with the authority of a king. And so he creates us, he gives us the authority, and he gives us the ability to live into that. So God says, you know, listen, how are you going to serve me? You're going to reign with me. 
Now, he can do it on his own, but he has chosen to involve us in what he is doing. But he also is going to hold us accountable for it. And so look what he does next. Verse 15 says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Now, get this. He placed the man. Eve, the woman, is not here yet. And this is an important thing. And when we close out our series next week, we're going to get to that. But keep that in mind. There's no woman yet. It's just the man. He's the only one there. Now, men, I want you to listen to this. Because this verse is significant for you. God put the man in the garden to tend to it and to watch over it. Men, God created you. And he put you in the place that you are to watch over it and to tend it, to tend to it. Wherever you are, that is your garden. Here in South City or San Bruno or Daly City or wherever it is that you live, that is your garden. Your wife, your children, your parents, your brothers and sisters, the people you work with, the people that you go to school with, that is where God has placed you. That is your garden. And if this is your garden, what are you supposed to do with it? Well, the first thing he says is you're going to tend to it. That phrase, that that word tend, in other translations, it's the word cultivate. It's the word serve. It, It means to actively make sure that something good happens in your garden. And if you've ever gardened, you understand this. Because if you've ever gardened, if you've ever raised vegetables or raised plants, one thing you know is, is that there are a lot of things that you have to do to set in place the perfect conditions for what you put in that garden to thrive. Right? And God is saying, listen, in the garden that I have placed you in, it is your responsibility to create an atmosphere, to actively work in that space To make sure that good things happen. To provide whatever needs to be provided to make sure that your garden thrives. That your garden thrives. That it flourishes. And then the other thing is, is not only do we tend to it, but we have to watch over it. Which means that we have to actively make sure that nothing bad comes in and destroys the good from happening. So I have a garden, you have a garden. My job is to protect my garden. And if anyone comes and tries to take that away, your job is to stop them. Taking care of it means protecting it so that the desired outcome is achieved. Now think about that for a minute. Seriously, guys, think about that. If that is our job, that we are placed in a garden, That wherever we are, wherever our circles run in, that that's the place where God has placed us. And our job is to tend to it and to watch over it. How does that change our attitude when we go into work on Monday? Or when we go to school on Monday? But there are rules. 
Verse 16, it goes on, and, and he says this. He says, but the Lord God warned him, warned him. Now, that word warned is not a command. I mean, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. And, and, and in other translations, it actually says, but the Lord God commanded him. So we make suggestions, right? Parents, you know this. If you have teenagers or if you ever had teenagers, the most you can do is give them suggestions because they're going to do whatever it is that they want. This is not a suggestion. This is a command from God. And God says, listen, I have a command for you. Now, I want you to notice there's still no woman. Men, there's no one for us to blame. It's all us right? There's no woman yet. And listen to what he says. He says, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden. All of them, they're for you. But, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, I was just having this conversation in the lobby right before we started today about this whole thing with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and what kind of fruit it was. And I grew up with pictures and I saw apples. How many of you saw apples? Right? That's what I always thought it was. Then there was an episode of Jeopardy where Alex Trebek said, what was the fruit in the, on, in the garden? And the answer was a quince, which I don't even know what that is. But apparently, some people believe it was a quince. The Jewish people believe that it was a grape. That because, and especially because grapes and grape juice and wine has a, a strong vein throughout the history of the Jewish people. There are other people who believe it was a fig, a fig tree. Because remember that when Adam eats the, or when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and, and I say remember because you guys read it, Right? So when, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they immediately see that they're naked, and the first thing they do is sew clothes out of fig leaves. So there's a lot of speculation over what kind of fruit it was. And there's a lot of speculation over that tree. We don't really have the answers because we weren't there, and all Scripture tells us is that it is fruit. And some people just don't believe that that ever existed that the tree was really a metaphor. But listen, whether you believe that the tree was a literal tree or not, the tree wasn't the problem. Think about this. I don't know how big that garden is, but I'm guessing that it's a pretty good-sized garden. And now I have been in an orchard, uh, an orange orchard, in an apple orchard, in a cherry orchard. I have been in a vineyard. I know you get a couple of acres in, you got a lot of trees. And all of the trees have great fruit. And all you have to do, you can eat from, listen to what God is saying. You can have all of them. Just don't do that one. And all of us turn and look at the one thing that we are not supposed to get into. And this is how life is. Sometimes we walk through life and we think, man, I, I, am, I am full of temptation. There's so many things that I can do. And reality is when we look around, there's so many good options. There's only one bad option. And for some reason, we always head there. 
Now, I want you to think about this. What is the person who wants the fruit from the bad tree? What is it that they're looking for? Why is that fruit the one that catches his eye? Reaching out for the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Reaching out for the fruit that God said, listen, this is going to be the thing that kills you. It is that thing in us that says, God, I don't trust you that you are going to give me or allow me to have or have the power to give me what is really going to make me happy. And so I am going to go and see if that is going to do it. And men, that has been the problem with men from the beginning of time is that we have not trusted in God's goodness, we have not trusted in God's word, and we think that there is something out there that is better than what God has promised, and we're worried that we're going to miss out. And so he sets you in your garden, and he sets you in your garden with a beautiful job and a beautiful family, and you are looking over at the tree that he said, that's going to kill you. And that's the thing that our eye goes to. Because we believe that tree is better. That tree is true. That tree is the tree that God either doesn't want me to have or doesn't have the ability to give me. And so there's something that he's holding back from me. And I think about this sometimes and I think to myself, man, have you ever gotten to this place where you just wish that God would say, okay, I'm going to zap you and now you can't make any more mistakes. You just, uh, you, you, you're not going to ever do anything wrong anymore. I mean, I'm thinking about that, and I'm going, yeah, I'll take that. You know, what is it, an injection? Is it a pill you take every day? Whatever that is, that's what I want. And, and if God was serious about this tree, and he didn't want them to touch that tree, why didn't he just build a wall around it and make Satan pay for it? That was bad, right? A fence. Steel slats. There was a, a movie a few years back. It's one of my favorite movies. It was one of Sandra Bullock's first movies. It was called Love Potion Number 9. Anybody ever see it? They, Sandra Bullock was a scientist, and, and uh, that other guy, I can't remember his name, but he had curly hair. And they developed this potion. It was Love Potion Number 9, and all you have to do is, uh, is uh, put it on you, and whoever you talk to will instantly fall in love with you until the potion wears off. And how great would that be? Listen, if you're forced to love somebody, that's not love. Right? And if God forces us to do things and doesn't give us a choice, that's not love either. Some people would say that that's slavery. And that's not who God created us to be. God created us in his image, in his likeness. He put part of who he is in you and in me. And so we were created with the freedom to make the decision. And he will never force us. Because he wants us to have a choice. He wants us to choose. And at the end of the day, you can have love potion number nine. But don't you really, wouldn't you really rather have someone who chooses you than someone who is forced to be with you? And so... We get to this place and we're thinking, okay, what do I do? I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. And it's just like everything else in our lives. When we 
bump up against a wall and we're not sure what to do. When, when it's not working properly, when the warning lights are going off, what do we do? We go to the owner's manual. Because the owner's manual was written by the person who created the thing, and that person knows how best to use it, how best to, to make it efficient, to get the most out of it. But not only that, at the end of it, it tells you, if you misuse this, here are the possible dangers. Injury, property destruction, death, it all comes in every owner's manual. And it's the same with this. In the very beginning, he told us, this is the proper way to use it. The proper way to use it. So here are the two questions. Right? The, the questions that we talked about. The first question is this, is who am I? Ladies, I want you to pay attention, but men, this is for you. It's the question that we said we were going to answer, who am I? And the short answer is this, I am an image bearer of God. Okay, I get it. Some of you may have even seen that before. I'm an image bearer of God. Da, 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 da. That makes a lot of sense. I'm an image bearer of God. Well, Jim Bergen, who's a, a pastor in, out in Colorado, and, and uh, his, uh, his uh, writing on this really is the big basis for this entire series. He defines the image bearer of God like this. He says this, as far as who am I? He says, a man's responsibility, that's who we are, our responsibility is to live a life that correctly reflects the image, the character the nature and the power of God. Blessing, empowering, and defining or assigning value which agrees with God. That's who we are. When, when we say, when Scripture says that we were made in God's image, when I say to you that who am I, that we are an image bearer of God, it means that we live a life that when people hear about God, they think of us. So imagine that. Your kid's in school, and the teacher is talking to them about who God is. And he, the teacher says, talks about the kindness of God, and how God is loving, and how God protects. And the kid's first response is, hey, that's just like my dad. Or your wife is, is in a class, or, or is at a conference, or is talking with her friends, and they're talking about the nature of God, and you're, they're reading, and they're talking about it, and they start talking about God's loving, and His kindness, and, and He's soft-spoken, and He protects. And she thinks, hey, that's just like my husband. We are supposed to bear the image of God in everything that we do. That when our employees go and they, they go to church and they hear about the image of God and they think, hey, that sounds just like my boss. That just sounds just like my classmate. That people can see who God's character is inside of us. That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. But we get to the second question and the second question is this. It is, what was I created for? What was I created for? And those verses that we read, it told us we were created to reign. I was created to reign, which means to co-rule with God over everything in my, within my kingdom. That's everything and every person that you have influence and authority over. 
over everything within my kingdom that God has entrusted or given responsibility to me to tend and watch over. To work to provide the best soil for my garden, the best environment for my garden. To work and tend to it, which means to make sure that the right fertilizer is there to make it grow. To, to protect it from bugs and to protect it from uh, other animals and little tiny animals that will come and to take it away and to, to do something other than to make your garden where you have been placed fruitful and multiply. My garden is my family. And my job is to provide the best soil, the best environment for my family. And so... I think of this and I hear God and he's saying, listen, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And I think of my daughter and I think that my job is because she is in my garden. My job is to make sure that she is fruitful and that she multiplies. And now listen, it's easy for us to say, oh, that's just kids. That's not what he's talking about. My daughter is, has gifts and talents and abilities. And I want those things that are in her to be fruitful and I want them to multiply. I want it for my daughter, for my son, for your daughter and for your son. That is, our, that is our responsibility, to create that environment so that they can be fruitful and multiply, so that they bear fruit. Our jobs is not who we are. We were created for more than that. Our jobs are simply a means to the end. It's give, our jobs give us the ability to create that environment so that the people in our garden thrive. And I am going to stand guard and protect my garden from anything that might try to destroy it. When, when my daughter was uh, out on her first date, some of you may have heard the story before because I talk about it, but when my daughter was out on her first date, my mother and I and 23 of our friends went with her. Seriously, we have pictures. You know why? Because I don't know this guy. And it's my job to protect my garden. And if I fall asleep at the wheel, some guy might come along and try to steal all of that from her. And that is my job. Jim, Jim says, there's stuff that's worth going to jail for. And fathers of daughters understand that. It's my responsibility. And ladies, single ladies, listen, wouldn't that be great if that was dad? If that is dad? Now, of course, you'll complain and you'll fight it and you'll say, oh, I don't want to, why are you like that? But inside, you're glad he's there. And there's some of you who wish that your dad was like that. So men, how do we do that? How do we get the strength to accomplish that? How do we get the strength to be able to reign over the things that are in our kingdom? To be able to tend to them and to protect them? It's simple. We have to make decisions every single day. Decision after decision after decision to not go after the wrong tree. Because when we make that decision... It gives us the ability to make the right choices and the strength to do the right things in order to protect our garden. Here's how uh, Jim Bergen tells us the clear mission and purpose of our life. He says this, Father God has created me in his image 
and he has entrusted me to reign with him over all the parts of his creation that he has put under my authority to provide and protect that they may experience the abundant life that God has planned for them. Wow, that's a lot. Here's the short version. You've seen it already. I was created to reign over everything within my kingdom, within my garden, that God has entrusted to me. So, I only have a few minutes left. We're going to go through this really quick. You're not going to get it all. So, ladies, take out your phones and start taking pictures. (laughs) Men, I'd tell you to do it, but you know you're not going to. But this is your homework. So, ladies, this is something that this is what you get to do this week. Remember, we said there's no talking, no touching, no taunting. But this week, we need your help because we're going to go through this and we're going to go through this real quick because there are five areas, five areas that we need to make sure that we are living up to the trust that God has placed in us. The first area of this is spiritual. Did I put up spars? Spars. I I tried to do something that would make it easy to remember, but this is the only word that I could come up with. So spars. Spars, five things. S, spiritual. We were created as spiritual beings. We are not just biology and chemistry. We are spiritual beings. And we are able to relate to and respond to God. So here's the thing. As a spiritual being, what are you doing, men, to learn and pass on God's truth to those in your kingdom? What are you doing to learn and to pass on God's truth to those in your kingdom? In other words, what image of God are you showing to the people who are in your kingdom? And listen, if you are not in God's word, you're not going to know what the image of God is like. But not only are we spiritual, but we are also physical because our spiritual life is lived out in our physical life. And so the question is this. Based on the way that you choose to treat your body through food, through drink, through your habits, through your health, what message are you intentionally or unintentionally communicating to those in your kingdom about what matters most? Now, listen, I have to tell you, this one hurt me the most because my father's father had a stroke before he was 50. My father's mother had a stroke before she was 50. Every single one of my mother, my father's Brothers and sisters, every single one of them had a stroke before they were 50. And when I go out and I'm eating pizza, I'm doing stupid things. What message am I unintentionally communicating to my family? I'm telling them, listen, you better get prepared real quick because I'm not going to be around for a while. And it hit me when my daughter came up to me and she said that she was worried that I wasn't going to be there for her wedding. And I made the decision that day. That was my look in the, in the mirror moment. And I've been going with her to her personal trainer ever since. Listen, we are communicating a message, men, in everything that we do. And our physical lives is as important as anything else. Because our physical lives is where people see what we do and who we are. So SPA, attentional. Attentional, I don't even know if it's a word. I should have looked it up. But it had to end in all, and so attentional. Where is your attention going? Based on your time. Look at your calendars. 
your attention? What are the things that you focus on? Your actions. I, I didn't put it there, but based on your checkbook, on your bank account, based on those things, what definition are you intentionally or unintentionally communicating to those who have put their trust in you? Are you never home? Are you working three shifts because you want to get into a bigger house, but you never see your kids? Listen, I'll tell you this. Your kids would rather have you than a bigger house that doesn't have you in it. What are you putting your focus and your attention on? R, the next R is relational. As you relate to your work, as you relate to each other at school, as you relate to your friends, your employees, your co-workers, your classmates, based on how you treat those under your authority or how you interact with those around you on a daily basis, if they were to build an idea about God based on your imaging of Him, who would they conclude, what, what would they conclude is true about God? Listen, if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, and everybody at work knows that you're a Jesus follower, think about this. If someone were to ask them what Jesus was like based on you, what would they say? Man, that's a hard one. That is a hard one. Because there are people in your lives who don't know Jesus, and they are looking to you to see what he is like. And then the final one, S, is sexual. Sex is always going to be the number one target on a man's life. Statistics are showing it. Today, the pornography problem in the United States is so bad that what they're finding out is that 20-year-olds, the millennial generation, is having less sex than that they've ever had. And the reason is, is because of the proliferation of pornography. That they would rather see it than actually engage in a relationship with somebody. So for us, men, based on the sexual thoughts and behaviors, whether you're 13 or 33 or 103, based on your sexual thoughts and behaviors that are acted out in your life, who and what are you looking to for the knowledge of what is good and what is evil? What's your tree? What tree are you focused on? So that's it. Those are the five areas. Those are the five things that, men, I want you to, to, to look at throughout this week. And in each one of those areas, I want you to ask yourself three questions. Three questions. This is a lot of homework, especially for those of you who couldn't read three chapters. Come on. So women, I'm counting on you. The first question is this. What's going on right now? What's going on in your life right now? Where are you right now in those areas of your life? Where are you? What, what is happening? What do you think about where you are right now in one of those parts? And listen, there's five of them. So if you can't get through all five, then pick one. Pick one. And answer the question, what's going on right now with you? Where are you in that area? And then I want you to ask this. What is the vision that you have for that part of your life? In other words... If you could take that part of your life, whatever area that is, and you could say, this is where I believe that God wants me to be. This is what I believe that I need to be in order for the people who are in my kingdom, the people who are in the garden where God has placed me. For those people, 
what do I need to be? What is the vision that you have for that part of your life? I mean, if I could start being that person, what do I need to do? And then the third question is this. What would it take to start moving in that direction? Seriously. You know, in, in half an hour, you're not going to be here. You're going to be driving somewhere. You'll be having dinner. You might be at a party, whatever it is that you're doing. But I hope that you don't let go of this. What would it take to start moving in that direction? What would it take for you to take that step? What would it take for you to have that look myself in the mirror moment and say, no, this is enough. It's not going to go any farther than this. I am going to make a change. And I know what some of you are thinking. You don't know what I've been through. Some of you are thinking, it's too late for me. My kids are grown. I have grandkids. I've already had my chances. Listen, it is not too late. It is never too late with God. In fact, the decision that you make today, you could be in your 40s, in your 50s, in your 60s, in your 70s, in your 80s, the decision that you make today to make a difference in your life could be the vision that someone else needs to say it's not too late for them either. It's never too late for you. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Grace Point Church is located in South San Francisco, California. For more information, look us up online at www.wearegracepoint.com.